0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name, I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. COVID-19 has caused millions of infections around the world and well over 200,000 deaths. The US, Spain, Italy, and the UK are amongst the most affected countries. The outbreak has generated lots of questions in the specialty of infectious diseases, but increasingly in all specialties. To tell us how the guidelines answer these questions, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castledon, Section Editor and GP, Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, and Emma Scott, Section Editor, who all work on BMJ best practice and BMJ learning. So to start with Matt. Matt, can you tell us about the latest guidelines on PPE, and particularly on PPE reuse?
2: What's changed in the last two weeks is that Public Health England do allow for PPE reuse. In extreme circumstances, if there's an acute shortage, gowns can be washed or alternative PPE can be found that can be washed, ideally in a hospital laundry, for example. This advice aligns with World Health Organisation and US CDC guidance um, that describes these measures as last resort temporary measures, so they're not considered to be normal practice
1: but they are now allowed uh, in UK practice. Okay thanks Matt and let's move on to testing. What's the latest guidance on testing and, and who can be tested at present?
2: Well, last week, the UK government opened an online coronavirus testing portal. So this gives essential workers, including all healthcare workers, a direct route to access a coronavirus test if they have symptoms of COVID-19 or if they live in the same household as someone with symptoms of COVID-19. This can either be through a drive-through testing centre or from home test kits sent to that individual. As has been widely reported, this has since been expanded to include other workers, anyone over 65 with symptoms and care home residents and staff, even if they don't have symptoms. NHS England guidance states that you should be in the first three days of the onset of your COVID-19 symptoms at the time the swab is taken, although the testing can be considered effective up until day five. Um, there are still local protocols on on testing and employers do have access to this service as well. Uh, but this is a route that essentially anyone can access directly through the online portal.
1: OK, thank you. That's that's helpful. Let's move on to this latest news story on children who've been affected by COVID-19 and who've developed, some of them, a serious inflammatory response uh, and have been admitted to intensive care. Can you tell us about that?
2: Well, the UK Paediatric Intensive Care Society released a statement on the 27th of April uh, confirming that NHS England had been in touch with their members Uh, Notifying them of a small rise in the number of cases of critically ill children presenting with an unusual clinical picture with features of toxic shock syndrome and atypical Kawasaki disease uh, with blood parameters consistent with severe COVID-19 but not all of these children had tested positive for COVID-19. These were children that often had abdominal pain and gastrointestinal symptoms cardiac inflammation as well. This was reported on on social media, and I think the original communication was intended really just for emergency care doctors uh, and intensive care doctors. The published evidence behind it is is small, but of course that applies to many things in COVID-19. There's one published case report that describes COVID-19 presenting in a six- month old child as Kawasaki disease, which of course is this systemic uh, vasculitis, uh, often with a rash and a persistent fever. Really, that's that's the sort of official line on what's happening. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, as to, you know, what this is and how significant
1: it is. Okay, but I guess the take-home message for a generalist is that if you do suspect this condition, then it's an urgent referral to paediatrics.
2: That's right. And and the other theme, really, in, in what's coming out of the Paediatric Intensive Care Society and the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health is that it is really important for parents and, and general practitioners and other doctors to, to keep on seeing and assessing patients, young patients, children who are unwell, and earlier in the month, on the 3rd of April, The Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health did publish a position statement which states while COVID-19 is infectious to children it is rarely serious and children do not always present with common symptoms and that was reiterated in the recent intensive care guidance. If a child is unwell they are likely to be unwell for reasons not related to COVID-19 and they are concerned that evidence is emerging that children and families are not accessing medical advice and review as soon as is needed. So uh, that's the other thing that's sort of come out of this. Parents and doctors still need to have you know, a low threshold for referring
1: children if they are acutely unwell. Okay, thanks, Matt. That's a very clear uh, message. Um, let's move on to Abigail. Abigail, can you tell us about end-of-life care in the community? Um, And, and NICE has recently... um published guidelines on this. Uh, Can you tell us about the the NICE guidelines? Uh,
0: Yes. So as you say, NICE have published guidelines on end-of-life care in the community. Um, And one of the things those guidelines talk about is the importance of advanced care planning. Of course, that's a fundamental part of palliative care in normal times but because patients with COVID can deteriorate so quickly NICE encourages us to have those conversations with patients and their loved ones as soon as possible. So clinicians should discuss the benefits risks and likely outcomes of any treatment the patient's preferences for treatment and escalation plans and whether a patient has any existing advanced care plans or advanced decisions to refuse treatment or any do not attempt resuscitation decisions. The symptoms that might need palliating are likely to be cough, fever, breathlessness and agitation. And NICE reminders that there are lots of non-pharmacological options available. So, for example, honey could be used for cough or controlled breathing exercises could be used for breathlessness. Um, Note that fans aren't recommended for breathlessness in patients with COVID because of concern that they could spread infection. Um, So instead, it's recommended to keep the room cool and to open a door or a window for ventilation. If non-pharmacological measures aren't sufficient, then NICE give some prescribing options too. Um, So for cough, they suggest using codeine first of all and then morphine sulfate second line. And for fever, they recommend either paracetamol or ibuprofen. And the guidelines do emphasise that you shouldn't use antipyretics with the sole aim of reducing body temperature. Um, They're just used if fever is causing distressing symptoms. For breathlessness, if you have a patient who is near the end of life and has moderate or severe breathlessness that's distressing, Um, you can use an opioid and benzodiazepine combination. And you'll probably need a concomitant antiemetic and a regular stimulant laxative with those. For anxiety and delirium, the guidelines remind us don't forget to look for and to treat reversible causes. Things like urinary retention, constipation or hypoxia. If that isn't helping, benzodiazepines can be used for anxiety or agitation. And haloperidol or levomopromazine can be used for delirium. The final point the guidelines make is to think about the route of administration of the drugs. Perhaps they may need to be given by carers or family members. You might need to think about the formulation um, if it's long acting or if it could be given subcutaneously or rectally, for example. There's a lot more on this topic on the BMJ Best Practice Palliative Care Overview, um, and there's more detail on specific COVID 19 related conditions in our new coexisting conditions in the context of COVID-19 topic, and that's being updated regularly at the moment.
1: Okay, thank you, Abigail, that's very helpful. And there's also been new guidelines for managing patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, Can you tell us about them?
0: Yes, NICE have published guidelines on gastrointestinal and liver conditions treated with drugs that affect the immune response. And actually, many of the key messages are similar to their previous guidelines on rheumatological and dermatological conditions. Um, So, for example, if a patient has no symptoms of COVID-19, they should continue taking their usual medication. And we should only start new drugs that affect the immune response if it's clinically essential and the required monitoring and review is feasible. The guidelines remind us that patients taking drugs affecting the immune response might have atypical symptoms if they do develop COVID. And if this happens, they shouldn't suddenly stop any oral or rectal corticosteroids. Um, nice advice to seek urgent specialist advice before stopping or changing any other drugs that affect the immune response. And um, Any blood tests to monitor response to therapy should be performed at the minimum safe frequency. Another important message in the guideline is for clinicians to remember that worsening gastrointestinal symptoms don't necessarily indicate a flare of inflammatory bowel disease. They may be due to COVID-19. Some experts advocate testing these patients for COVID to exclude that before starting any treatment for a flare. The final thing to say is that while elective endoscopic procedures have being deferred, urgent endoscopy should continue, and that includes cases of inflammatory bowel disease where the endoscopy results would urgently change management.
1: Okay, thanks Abigail. And moving on to Emma now, and moving on also to another specialty, perinatal care. Emma, I wonder what does the pandemic mean for perinatal care?
3: Yeah, also covered in the new best practice um, topic on management of coexisting conditions, some elements of routine care for all pregnant women will have changed during the current pandemic, and local and national guidelines have been published um, with their recommendations on this. During antenatal care, the number of hospital visits might be limited, and some of the usual face to face appointments will be replaced with remote consultations by telephone or video call. Patient will still need to attend maternity services for necessary ultrasound scans, but where possible these in-person appointments will be arranged so that scans and other investigations such as blood or urine tests can all be done at the same time. Patients might be reluctant to attend in person if they're worried about exposing themselves to COVID-19 infections, so it's important that attendance and contact with patients is carefully monitored. Course, if the patient reports any concerns about themselves or their baby during a remote contact, a face-to-face appointment should be advised. And uh, if a patient reports any symptoms of COVID-19 infection before an in-person appointment, then they really need to be assessed to see if an urgent home antenatal visit is needed or if that appointment can be delayed until they're better. During birth, the number of people accompanying the patient in labour is now generally restricted to one person. And this person remains with them throughout labour and birth. If induction or cesarean delivery has been scheduled this may be able to be continued if indicated but if the patient has suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection then they should be assessed to see if it can be safely rescheduled. Home birth um, is also considered in some cases still but isn't currently offered everywhere, some places have removed the service um, and appropriate support needs to be in place. As with antenatal care the number of postnatal visits may also be limited and some again may be done remotely rather than face-to-face depending on the needs of mother and baby.
0: Breastfeeding
3: uh, can continue to be encouraged as there is currently no evidence that COVID-19 can be transmitted through breast milk.
1: Okay, thank you very much Emma and and thanks to you Matt and Abigail also. Um... We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign in to BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning, and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.